Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein up here in New Hampshire covering the end of primary season. Wait, I was wondering where you were, Rick. You're, you're in New Hampshire? Uh, yeah. You're, you're, not, you're not exploring a run for president, are you? <laughs> no, I, I'll be Sherman-esque in my denials, but but I may be alone in that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of rumblings up here already. Uh, 2020 is now. 2020 is now. Do you, do you, do you, do you think there will be a couple Democrats that are going to be up there? Or? There's, you know, John Delaney, I believe, is in the state even this week. There's already one. There's more There's more to come. And, uh, yeah, this is uh, – the, the the ride has uh, has already begun for uh, for what's going to be a wild year. All right, we have a very big show ahead, uh, and we have a conversation coming up with Ken Starr, who is out with a new book on his experience as the independent counsel during the Monica Lewinsky uh, and Whitewater uh, uh, debacles. Uh, he's got some very harsh things to say about the uh, the, the the folks that he used to investigate. Um, and I, I think he may have some interesting comments about the current president. And, Rick, we've got uh, a hurricane bearing down on the East Coast. Uh, so I don't know which is going to hit first, but I'll tell you, it, 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 it always feels like there's a storm here in Washington. It strikes me, John, that under normal circumstances, under maybe previous presidents, this would be a time where politics would very much take a back seat, And we wouldn't be talking about politics. The president has canceled a couple of rallies this week and... Uh, obviously, congressional action could be curtailed by preparations for the storm, which these are is not normal hit, times. Particularly Rick. the Carolines. These are not normal times, and 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 I believe it was the president himself who kind of underlined that point by uh, talking about how big and severe this storm would be, but again, bragging about the response to Puerto Rico just yesterday. Yeah, it's not just that. I mean, you have the president. Um, well, on on September 11th, literally on his way to Shanksville to commemorate, you know, the the 17th anniversary of the attacks, while preparing for this storm, tweeting a series of attacks on his own Justice Department it was really quite extraordinary. But let's let, let's listen to some of what the president had to say about the experience in Puerto Rico. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible unsung success. Uh, Texas, we have been given A pluses for. Uh, Florida, we've been given A-pluses for. I think in a certain way, the best job we did was Puerto Rico, but nobody would understand that. I mean, that's, it's harder to understand. Raises a couple questions for me, Rick. Uh, first of all, who gives these grades? Um, <laughs> and, right. and the second thing is... If you, Where's the scorecard? Yeah, and, and if you have an A-plus and then something is better than an A-plus, what is that? Is that like an A-plus-plus, or what is that? It's weighted, it's weighted averages. You know, you could get a you could get 105. Uh, I think it's a degree of difficulty is what he's what he is uh, what he's grading on. But I mean, this reignites the feud with Puerto Rican officials, of course, who are quick to point out that with a death toll of nearly 3000 uh, and with people on the island that still don't have power now, a year later, it's very, very hard to make the case that this was. Uh, a success from people that were actually on the ground and are still dealing with the consequences of it. So the president's right. No one is singing about success, I, I think, except for the president. And it fits with what he does with the superlatives and the, the reassurances and the, the we, we've got this thing and he, he needs to take the trophy uh, for himself psychologically. Uh, but it, it doesn't fit with the facts. And do you, think he mind, believes just, it? Do, do you think he believes it or is this just, you know, well, he's I, the salesman. He breathes everything's the best. Everything's the greatest. But does he actually? Well, I, because it actually matters because you learn – if, if you see mistakes that were made, you learn from mistakes. Right. I do think the, the, the point has been made to him by people around him that, that Puerto Rico was a uniquely difficult situation because it is an island, because it had an aging 
uh, outdated infrastructure totally on the true. front end. And, they, uh, and they're 100% uh, right about that. that. Yeah. yeah, that and and they also will have some. They'll find flaws in the methodology of the of the recent official estimate that puts the uh, the death toll at, at close to 3,000. That it's over a longer period of time, and people that were otherwise sick who happened to pass away, uh, you can say it's because they you know, because they didn't have access to medical services or power. I don't know how, though. I, I don't. I can't imagine that there are actual federal officials who are telling President Trump we did we we did that. That's a success story. That what happened in Puerto Rico is a success story. Because as you point out, whatever the challenges, you have to be able to learn from what didn't go right. And even us leaving aside the enduring images of the president, you know, with the basketball shots of the paper towels and the like on, on his on his brief visits down there. That just wasn't the reality for people that 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 actually went through this. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think part of it is the typical presidential bluster, but I think it has more real consequences when millions of lives are uh, going to be impacted by another storm that's hitting, and the, the president is going to be seeing his leadership tested and and having standards that he himself is is setting out be among those that are uh, that, that are used to judge him. And he has said they're completely and totally prepared uh, for this hurricane, for Hurricane Florence. Let's hope he is correct about this. Let's hope that whoever gives those grades uh, will ultimately give an A-plus to this, uh, that the federal response is all in line. But it is interesting, as they are preparing for this, they are also fighting back hard at the White House, still against uh, whoever the anonymous author of the New York Times op-ed was, and uh, against the uh, 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 the Bob Woodward book, uh, we, we see really a, a campaign out there. And we had, in the midst of all this this week, uh, our first White House briefing, Rick, in 19 days, uh, which which set a new mark. It was, it's the longest we have gone in the Trump era without a uh, a White House briefing, even surpassing um, the um, the Sean Spicer era, who uh, went went dark for extended periods of time, and. At this briefing, there's so much to ask about. Even it was the, we, we had so many things that have happened since the, the last time we were able to, you know, put the questions to the White House press secretary. But I wanted to ask about something that had happened a, a week ago, which was this uh, tweet from the president suggesting that Jeff Sessions should uh, stop the prosecution of of Congressman uh, uh, Collins and, and, and Duncan Hunter, the two first uh, members of Congress to endorse uh, candidate Donald Trump, um, both charged with, uh, with, with crimes. Uh, and he's basically saying this is going to hurt Republican chances in the midterms. And good job, Jeff, Jeff Sessions. So I asked about that. Is, is the president really trying to suggest or, or outright saying that the Justice Department shouldn't be investigating or prosecuting allies of the president if it might hurt his party's political chances? Certainly the, the president thinks that no one is above the law. Uh, what he would like to see is a, a fair playing field, that there also be um, – there have been a number – of uh, concerns raised about individuals, both in the FBI and the Department of Justice, that have been ignored, and we'd like to see those looked at as well. See, but, but for those two prosecutions, he doesn't want to go forward because they're his allies. Uh, I can't weigh in right now on an active investigation, but I can tell you that uh, the president doesn't think anyone is above the law, and we're simply stating that there should be cause for concern of, of a number of uh, things that have happened, both in the Department of Justice and the FBI, that we'd like to see those looked at as well. So, so Rick, I, I, I mean, she can't weigh in on an ongoing investigation. I mean, the White House can't talk about an ongoing investigation. Of course not. 
I mean, it's ridiculous. Of course to not. Ask. Not, not unless not unless you're the president, I guess. I, that's that, that's the that's he the only does tend to weigh in on the, investigations, doesn't he? He does from time to time, and I, this is the new version of the tweet speaks for itself, where mm-hmm. they they really can't go there as as uh, as White House employees to to play this kind of politics. But it does. It is a. It, it is fascinating to see the president continue to do this, despite the people that have said that this is that this is an inappropriate thing for him to be doing, and despite the very many warnings that are out there, and despite the scrutiny he's under about his relationship with the Justice Department. Uh, and of course, happening on the week of a major storm and happening on the week of September 11th only makes it more jarring, John. Uh, in, indeed. So, um, Rick, I, I, I want to. We have to take a very quick break, and I want to get right to this conversation uh, with with Ken Starr. I know that you've got to uh, you've got to run, uh, but I know you will be listening very carefully uh, once you get to a place where you can you can listen to this conversation. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ken Starr. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. All right. And joining us now is Ken Starr, former U.S. Solicitor General and federal judge, former president of Baylor University, and of course, the former independent counsel for four and a half years uh, during the Clinton era, uh, from Whitewater to Monica Lewinsky and all of that. And now, uh, Judge Starr, you have finally written your story about that incredibly chaotic and challenging time. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And the name of the book is Contempt, a Memoir of the Clinton Investigation. And I, I want to ask you, because you, you, you came into this, uh, you, you eventually became one of the most vilified uh, political figures in America, the, the entire Clinton machine, the Democratic machine, uh, targeted you in a, in, a, in a very personal way. But when you took this job, you were one of the uh, you were one of the most well respected legal figures uh, in America. You were talked about as a possible Supreme Court justice. You came into this, you you know, and and and, and began this investigation. And at some point, you write that that you came to uh, to to see uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton as people who believed they were above the law, uh, who were uh, fundamentally dishonest, contemptuous of, of the legal process. I, I'm just wondering, at what point did you come to feel that way? Because I, I don't think that's the way you came into this job. Fairly early on, <laughs> because especially with respect to uh, Bill Clinton and then uh, Hillary's uh, mendacity and uh, prolig- prolif- <laughs> what am I trying to say? <laughs> Her tendency to Um, not be obedient to to law, to be dismissive of legal constraints and so forth. That became clear over time. But uh, when I arrived in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, I heard uh, this from a very respected uh, lawyer, uh, Bob Fisk, who Janet Reno had appointed as the first special counsel, independent counsel, as we were called in those days, that... uh, we have the cooperation of a very important witness. His name is David Hale. Uh, we believe David Hale. Uh, and David Hale has implicated the President of the United States in financial crimes. And everything that we saw corroborated that uh, uh, testimony and statement by David Hale. But we ended up not being able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But we believed in the investigation. 
that President Clinton had been, as governor, involved in financial crimes uh, and that he lied about it uh, under oath. So that was evident almost uh, from from day one, that that was what the evidence was showing. And Bob Fisk was someone who I don't think the White House ever tried to paint in any way as a partisan or what have you. But then uh, I I knew that something was uh, afoot uh, within uh, two weeks of my taking the job. Uh, I was uh, being subjected to a campaign of vilification, which was uh, relentless, and the uh, Clinton White House was uh, was was very was very uh, effective uh, at it in any number of respects, vilifying uh, enemies, uh, vilifying women who made accusations of wrongdoing. Uh, in the case of Juanita Broderick, uh, an allegation of an actual crime of rape uh, by Bill Clinton. Uh, so uh, the uh, the, the theater became very dramatic, uh, really, at day one. And, and we'll, we'll, I want to get to, of course, the echoes to what we see today, because listening to you talk about, uh, about a White House, about a president uh, vilifying um, a, um, uh, an investigator and, and intimidating those um, who may be uh, uh, either conducting or around the investigation, I, I, I'm hearing some echoes of today. But, but before we, we get to today, one, one of the episodes, and, and I, I was a – uh, a cub reporter for CNN kind of tracking it for, for a period of time, you know, most almost your every move. One of the um, one of the most bizarre episodes, and there were many of them, was the uh, the Rose Law Firm uh, billing records, um, which you had you had you would you had eagerly sought for a long time. Can, can you remind us uh, where those records? First of all, how, how critical those were and, and, and where those records finally ended up? Uh, showing up? Yes. The Rose Law Firm billing records were extremely important, not just relevant, but highly material to the investigation. They had been sought by my predecessor, Bob Fisk, before him, uh, the United States Attorney's Office. In other words, these records had been sought literally for a, a year plus when I took over the investigation. The Rose Law Firm billing records showed that Hillary Clinton performed legal services for Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan. Uh, She had, uh, I think, told lies publicly with respect to her involvement in that failed, fraud-ridden federal savings, federally insured uh, savings and loan, owned by Jim and Susan McDougall, both of whom were crooks. So she was the lawyer for crooks. And she had personally lawyered. Which a lot of lawyers are, right? I mean, that's, that's you know, crooks need lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a little bit different. Uh, I, honestly, the Rose Law Firm is a very respected law firm. And no, they really didn't represent yeah. crooks. But Bill Clinton personally asked his friend, the crook Jim McDougall, to steer uh, legal business to Hillary Clinton uh, over at the Rose Law Firm. But, of course, she was saying, no, no, I didn't do anything uh, for the Rose Law Firm. In effect, and obviously I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting. In the fullness of time, those records, which had been stolen, and that's a, that's a harsh word, but it's true, from the uh, Rose Law Firm in Little Rock, Arkansas, no explanations 
Who took them? Those, of course, pre-electronic days. But then they were, quote, discovered yeah, where? In, the book room, <laughs> in the book room of the White House, where Hillary was writing her book, It Takes a Village. So the records clearly appeared with, by the way, handwriting of Vince Foster Jr., the late Vince Foster Jr., with red ink and circles and arrows and so forth, all pointing to the fact that these records had been stolen by one of the three partners of the Rose Law Firm or someone under their direction, Vince Foster, Webster Hubble, who pled guilty to fraud against his own law firm and against his client, yeah, Uh, and, and Hillary herself. Now, Hillary had possession of these documents. So, yeah, so, so can I, I mean, going to stop you for a second. I mean, th- th- this, is, sure. this is why this is so remarkable. So you, you, you and your predecessor had been uh, trying to get these. The Rose Law Firm said, look, we don't have them. They've, they've gone missing. Uh, this critical piece of evidence in your investigation. And then it shows up in the White House? Yes, in the in, in, residence in, of the White House. Not in someone's office. In the office, residence, but, in the residence of the White yes. House. Yeah, a, in, a, in, in what was called the book room, which was where Hillary was writing her book, uh, It Takes a Village. So how do you think so they ended it, up there? How, how did that happen? It, they, we couldn't prove it, but we believe they were taken either by Vince Foster or Webb Hubble, more likely Vince Foster, taken to his office. And we believe after his suicide in July, very tragic, July of 1993, those records were then, this is, we can't prove it. We couldn't prove it, but the records were then taken from Vince Foster Jr.'s office in the West Wing of the White House, where he served as deputy White House counsel, and taken over to the residence where they were hidden. Or they remained <laughs> unavailable month after month after month. So the circumstantial evidence was uh, was uh, quite strong. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So I, I remember vividly when you finished your work. And again, you were an independent counsel, which is different than the special counsel that we have now. And, and, and you, were, you were not you – know, you were independent. You were operating independently of the Department of Justice under a separate statute. And when you were done, you had to turn your – file your report to Congress. And the amazing yes. thing is there was the question of then what do you do with all of the evidence that you had, you had compiled uh, over the course of a four-and-a-half-year investigation? And – uh, the answer we learned is you were going to just drop it all off at the house. And and I remember standing there on the steps of the Capitol waiting for literally the, the, uh, the van to show up to drop off boxes and boxes and boxes of, of, of raw evidence in addition to this to this report that, that was to be released. But but all of the evidence at the at the Capitol building um, and and then you know up to Congress to figure out what the heck to to do with it, um, but right. but, I, but I have to ask you when when the when they finally released your report, not not the underlying documents those 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 remained under seal, um, but when you, when they released your report and I was at CNN and I was working with Candy Crowley at the time, and like yeah. everybody else we we started reading your report live. On television, because it was there was such interest in this. Obviously, it was so, you know, it was such an eagerly awaited document. And obviously, um, I mean, you you didn't hold anything back. Um, and it, this was not the kind of thing that uh, many people would have wanted the kids to hear back, uh, you know, watching TV during the middle of the day. Looking back at all of that, did you 
do you did you have regrets with how graphic uh, uh, you you wrote that story, the Monica Lewinsky um, you know aspect of it, the 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 uh, the details that you put in there again the weekend. I don't even know if we could repeat on this podcast. Uh, looking back, was was that a mistake? No, it had to be done. Uh, and why did it have to be done? Because the president uh, lied under oath. He was told by members of his party, please, we know you lied under oath in the Paula Jones deposition. We haven't talked about that, but that was the background of all this. When the Supreme Court of the United States rejected President Clinton's extravagant claim that he should enjoy immunity from any lawsuit, regardless of what he had done (laughs) or had been alleged to have done, he didn't have to answer for however many years. Four years, eight years, and so forth. And, of course, as I predicted, uh, the Supreme Court, I wasn't involved in the litigation, but I followed it uh, because of my interest in constitutional law. The Supreme Court rejected that extravagant claim nine to nothing. So the process unfolded, and he should have settled the case. If he wasn't going to settle the case, if he was going to litigate the case, if he was going to litigate the case, he should have told the truth. And he didn't. He continued to lie, including to the federal grand jury, committed perjury. So we felt and we obviously struggled with exactly what do we say and how do we say it. And what we determined was we had to prove the elements of these very serious offenses of perjury and obstruction of justice. We needed to do it beyond a reasonable doubt. We could leave nothing that could be called into question and say, oh, no, 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 the prosecutors have overlooked that, or here's this other fact that points in the other direction. The glove doesn't fit. You must acquit, et cetera. That entire kind of narrative with his extraordinary uh, lawyers at, at Williams and Conley, who are just the best in the country. So we decided we had to prove the case. Uh, And that's what we did. Now, what was a surprise was when the House of Representatives voted sight unseen, no one had reviewed it, to reveal or to publish the entire uh, report uh, unredacted uh, on the Internet and so forth that we did not anticipate it. And we could not have reasonably anticipated it because that had never been done before, especially with our cover letter that warned that there was very sensitive material and so forth. So uh, the House of Representatives made that decision. They had the power to do it. But I certainly regret that the House did that. They easily could have uh, issued a redacted report and handled things in executive session and so forth. It was extraordinary because they, uh, members of Congress, uh, got the report at exactly the same time that members, that people in the public got the report, reporters and, and, and the general public. And what what I had realized, there were two separate uh, systems set up on Capitol Hill. There was the Internet, uh, which is how they were going to distribute a report uh, to the public at large and to those of us in the press. And there was the congressional intranet, which was a closed internal system. And, um, and they were to go on at exactly the same time. And what I realized is that that the internet would be overwhelmed because everybody in America was going to be trying to read your report at the same time. Yes. And I figured there was a good chance it was going to crash or be slow or whatever. And with the intranet, there was a very limited uh, a group of, you know, universe of people that were going to be on it. So we at CNN, uh, I got into a, a member of Congress's office, actually a Democrat, <laughs> um, who uh, who allowed me to cable into his office 
live and put our live cameras trained on, on one of their office computers, and we ended up getting it first. I mean, it went, it went to everybody at the same time, but as predicted, the, uh, the first one went down. So we at, at CNN, and we brought in, and it was, I was with Candy Crowley, and she, she was the one tasked with reading, for, again, for the very first time. And before yeah, anybody yeah. saw, I mean, the, 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 the details of, 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 of the president's affair with Monica Lewinsky, I mean, really, it was a... <laughs> Well, I can't imagine what you were thinking when you saw all this unfold. Well, it was just terrible. But what, uh, and I remember this so vividly, and I try to describe this in the, my book and my memoir, that we had the facts. We had the evidence. Once Monica Lewinsky and I described the ordeal that we all had until Monica took herself out of peril by hiring finally two very capable criminal defense lawyers, and we had a deal right away. We were not interested in prosecuting Monica Lewinsky. She's very smart, uh, but she decided uh, to not cooperate. And so that decision, coupled with the White House's decision to declare war on the prosecution, while, by the way, saying, hey, we're cooperating with the investigation, which, again, was was a falsehood. And one of the things that we did in the referral was to point to, we called it count 11, the abuse of power uh, discussion in the referral, in the analysis, which we felt strongly, and the we is the team, but also augmented by Sam Dash, uh, the legendary Sam Dash, as I described in the book, who Uh, felt strongly as well, having lived through Watergate, a Democrat, uh, having served the Senate Select Committee on Watergate, uh, Sam Dash felt that it was Count 11 that connected uh, what we were doing to the seriousness of Watergate, that the president had abused his powers, invoking executive privilege improperly, lying about whether it had been invoked or not, trying to create through his lawyers in the Treasury Department a completely phantom privilege called, is essentially the Secret Service privilege, which was preposterous. No judge accepted that proposition. I urged the Justice Department not to argue it. They did. They were loyal to the president to a fault. Uh, So you saw the perversion of the Justice Department uh, under Bill Clinton. Uh, And so at the end of the day, what Congress ended up doing was taking uh, this one dimension of our investigation, because we did not believe that we had the kind of probative evidence in the Arkansas phase to prove the financial crimes and the perjury on the part of Bill Clinton, and we did consider, as I outlined in the book in some detail, that which has never been revealed before, that we gathered together to review a proposed indictment of Hillary Rodham Clinton to present to the grand jury in Little Rock, an indictment supported by a very elaborate prosecution memorandum. I remember this as if it were yesterday, and we decided we just did not have the evidence to go forward that would be usable in court to prove her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So the uh, and was that the right decision? From, looking back, yes, we just did not have the admissible evidence. We did not have the cooperation of Webster Hubble. Vincent Foster was dead. We did not have the cooperation of Susan McDougall, who had been convicted of felony crimes. 
Uh, and so we and the documentary evidence with respect to the underlying financial crimes in Arkansas was limited. It wasn't non-existent, but we just did not have much documentation. There had been a lot of shredding of documents. I described that in the book of uh, the elaborate shredding, the systematic shredding of documents of Madison Guarantee. So the president and the first lady at the time were very lucky. Uh, and so there was a false narrative uh, that, well, nothing was found in Arkansas untrue. There were 14 criminal convictions. You well know you lived through it. The federal uh, jury trial of almost three months long convicting uh, Bill and Hillary's uh, business partners, the McDougals of fraud, as well as the sitting governor of Arkansas who succeeded Bill Clinton as uh, governor, uh, Jim Guy Tucker. So there was an enormous amount of skullduggery in, in Arkansas, but nothing that we felt that we could present because of the lack of evidence. And what's interesting is you didn't do what James Comey would then do uh, so many years later when he also went down the road of investigating Hillary Clinton, decided that there was nothing, that, that, that he didn't have the uh, uh, the evidence to go forward uh, prosecuting crime, but decided to go out and lay out what he did have. <laughs> um, uh, on that, that, well, that, if that. I if I if I had anticipated that that would be correct procedure, uh, I would have done that. I yeah. said, "Look, here's our evidence, and I don't have to get into cattle futures and the yeah. fraud that was committed uh, to enrich uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, which was not part of our investigation. But we knew how the marketplace worked, uh, and the press seemingly believed at the time." that she read the Wall Street Journal and made $100,000 on a $1,000 investment in, in cattle futures. I mean, it's preposterous on its face. So, Anyone of any sophistication knew that there was a total lie. So, so let, let's, let's move forward to the current situation. Um, and you, you see the way this president is behaving, and you see what this president uh, the, the, the campaign this president is waging against the special counsel. Again, it's a different beast than what you were as an independent counsel, but it's, it's, it's a very similar mandate. Um, and and we, we see the president saying what he has said, calling it a witch hunt, uh, accusing uh, Robert Mueller and his team of, of political bias uh, in, in, in a very harsh way. And, and, and his uh, attacks echoed uh, by members of Congress, by an entire cable news network that spends, you know, hour after hour echoing uh, and expanding on the president's uh, attacks. Um, this this looks a lot like uh, what you went through and, and maybe uh, considerably worse because we didn't see Bill Clinton from the White House, um, you know, leveling uh, uh, the, the, the – attacks with the ferocity that this president is leveling at Bob Mueller on, on almost a daily basis. There are very uh, strong, almost eerie echoes of the past. Uh, but what we now know, and uh, the president's lawyers, President Trump's lawyers have uh, said, at least off the record, I've read reports to this effect, so it's my understanding that they have said, oh yeah, we're just taking a page from the Clinton uh, playbook vilify the prosecutor. The difference is, and, and you've hit it, for the most part, Bill Clinton himself did not engage in vilification, but he did it indirectly. It was relentless. Uh, it was uh, horrible. It was deeply personal, not just to me, but an effort to take out uh, prosecutors. 
uh, on my staff. Uh, they succeeded with one uh, prosecutor who ended up leaving the investigation under vicious assault uh, by uh, the White House uh, machine, the lawyers, their surrogates, and so forth. Uh, but uh, the president, the current president, in contrast to that president, through his lawyers, has actually cooperated with the investigation from everything that appears. Bill well, can I, can I stop told. you for a second on that? Because I, sure, uh, because I, I don't know that that's in, entirely correct. I mean, my, my understanding on this, uh, and I'm following this as sure. closely as I followed your investigation way back when, um, is that the, uh, the, the the initial approach under under uh, Ty Cobb and, and and John Dowd, the president's uh, first uh, a legal team, was full cooperation. They they made White House officials fully available to be interviewed. Uh, as we know, Don McGahn uh, testified for hour after hour after hour. They turned over more than a million pages of documents. What what people very close to the uh, to the to the president and his legal team have told me is that. They view that as a terrible mistake, and they are trying to, uh, in every way, you know, unwind uh, what what has already what has already been done, um, and that's why you see the president uh, with his current legal team fighting tooth and nail uh, to not do an interview that the president has uh, repeatedly said publicly, including to me, uh, uh, that that he would be willing to do. Um, fighting that interview, um, and now if you believe Rudy Giuliani, their latest uh, their latest insistence is they'll do written questions, but not on the issue of, of obstruction of justice. They will do written questions and not allow any follow up to those written questions and ruling out uh, an in person interview. I, I don't think you can characterize the president now as fully cooperating with with the special counsel. Yeah, but my point remains. Um, we were not getting the kind of cooperation that apparently, I accept what you said, existed at, at one time. What we were getting was a very clever ruse that we are cooperating in every way. Now, to be sure, the president and the first lady sat down for interviews, and, and so uh, they, they certainly got credit uh, for that, where we believe they both uh, committed perjury. So they weren't forthcoming and honest. Uh, but here... <laughs> Here's the thing with respect to the most dramatic phase, the Lewinsky phase. The president feigned cooperation, saying he was cooperating, and yet we were trying to get him to be interviewed, uh, appear before the grand jury. We sent, and I chronicle all this in the book, five letters uh, to counsel over time, week after week, month after month. And finally, we issued a subpoena. The first time we believe that a president of the United States was just was subpoenaed to testify as opposed to producing documents. Uh, and only then did then David Kendall and the president relent. And we agreed to what then happened famously on August 17, 1998. So there, there, uh, you're right. There, there certainly is a very different style uh, in your face kind of style. What was happening is they were essentially playing on two levels in the Clinton White House, uh, essentially claiming cooperation and doing everything to obstruct our investigation. Do you uh, believe if in terms of you mentioned the subpoena of Bill Clinton, which they ended up um, and then voluntarily uh, testifying in this case, the president's legal team has made it very clear that if Bob Mueller subpoenas the president to sit down for an interview, they will fight that subpoena. Yeah. If that were to happen, 
What do you think happens at the Supreme Court? Well, I think the fundamental principle is, uh, as we articulated during the Clinton investigation and really what my entire book is about, is the rule of law. Um, I think no one is above the law. And so that the president can, in fact, be subpoenaed. There is an argument on the other side, which takes us back to the difference between the old independent counsel statute under which I operated and then what the situation is now with Bob Mueller. He's an officer of the Justice Department that creates a different structure, whereas I was independent, appointed by judges at the behest or at the invitation and request of the attorney general. And that hybrid structure meant that, in my judgment, that uh, I was duty-bound to use my independent judgment, independent of the executive branch, but mindful of the policies of the Justice Department, and to proceed to get the job done. Bob Mueller's in a very special and, and somewhat sensitive situation in that he's an officer of the Justice Department. As I see it, the president could order him to withdraw the subpoena. The president would not be able to do that under the old law. And if the president were to order him to withdraw the subpoena or fire him altogether, perhaps, uh, would could that be challenged? Uh, could could would, would would that go to the Supreme? I mean, it, clearly it would be challenged. But do you think you think the Supreme Court would 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 have come down the way you just came down? Say the president in this case actually is above the law because we don't have an independent counsel statute, and if he wants to pull the plug on an investigation into his own activities, he he's it's fully within his power to do so. Well, it would raise a very different, the reason I don't think it's an easy question uh, to uh, answer uh, is because of this different structure. Do you see what I'm saying? Then the, but there's still that principle, uh, is, 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 is anybody above the law? And what you're saying is because of this structure, because we no longer have the, the structure that, you know, that this independent counsel statute, um, that, that the president is in effect above the law. That is going to be the argument if this comes to pass. And I think it's going to be a hard issue at the Supreme Court because of the very idea that here's an executive branch officer trying to order the president around. Well, just think of that. An assistant secretary of the Treasury uh, or the SEC says we're going to come in and we're going to uh, mandate. Well, the SEC says a bad example because it's an independent organization. Let's say it's a Treasury investigation into some aspect of Trump financing uh, in, 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 his, uh, in, in his business. I'm giving an odd hypothetical, but I think it's useful. The courts would say, you all go settle this. Uh, we're not going to be involved. This is a squabble between the Secretary of the Treasury and people who report to him and the President of the United States. <clears throat> Don't involve us in this. Uh, <laughs> so it's a different kind of thing because the special counsel statute, the independent counsel statute, struck the balance more in favor of independence than accountability. Now we have eroded independence since the demise of the statute, and we have now said we want greater accountability. So it's going to be a neat question. Now, I do agree with the proposition. No one is above the law. And much of my book is devoted to exactly that, that the reason that the book is named content is first and foremost that Bill Clinton is the only president in American history to have been held in contempt by a federal district judge. And you can say, well, a federal district judge can do virtually anything. But the president did not appeal that judgment. 
So that stands in the history books as final, uh, irrevocable. It can't be changed. Uh, and it can't be pardoned because it was civil contempt as, as, as well. It was not uh, a criminal contempt uh, charge to the president's pardon power doesn't go to that. I mean, there, there's and so many. Yeah. Yeah. See, there's so many fascinating issues here because if this does, if, if there were to be a subpoena and the president were to fight it, one question I <laughs> is what, who does the solicitor general represent in that case the solicitor general <laughs> represents right is he is he is he is the solicitor general defending the justice department's uh the, the officer of the justice department subpoena or is the solicitor general working on behalf of, of of the white house and the president fighting that subpoena i would say he definitely owes his loyalty to the justice department and to the rule of law uh loyalty and i described this in the book there was a great lawyer in Washington, you'll remember him, uh, named Lloyd Cutler. And uh, when the White House, uh, under Bill Clinton and Hillary, the co-presidency, was in such tumult and chaos, sound familiar? Uh, They fired the wonderful Bernie Nussbaum, who I like very much as White House counsel, and brought in a gray-haired, wise village elder named Lloyd Cutler. And when I took over the investigation under the statute, and I'm heading to Little Rock. I described this in the book in some detail, but this is fascinating. I remember this day very, very vividly. So I land in uh, Memphis. I'm changing planes, and I had two calls uh, to return. I called my law office. And one was to Janet Reno's attorney general. The other was to Lloyd Cutler, the relatively new White House counsel. And Lloyd Cutler said, Ken, I wish you – I knew him. Ken, I wish you well in this new endeavor. And I wanted to say – that I represent the presidency. David Kendall of Williams and Conway represents the president. Mm-hmm. There it is. The Justice Department represents the rule of law. It is the Department of Justice. It's not part of the White House defense team. And um, my part of my criticism of Janet Reno's Justice Department during that last most controversial phase of my work was that the Department of Justice was compromised. My opinion, others will have a different opinion. People like Eric Holder will say that's not so. That's fine. Let's have a debate about that. But I believe the Department of Justice, is, with Eric Holder as the Deputy Attorney General, Janet Reno as the Attorney General, were compromised because they started defending the White House. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, which is exactly what this president would like to see his current Justice Department do. And I know we've already taken up too much of your time, but I I want to ask you before you go about some of the president's most recent comments. Actually, one specifically, uh, of course, via Twitter. This was a week ago Sunday when – and I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the tweet. I'm sure you're familiar with it. He said, two long-running Obama-era investigations of two very popular Republican congressmen were brought to a well-publicized charge just ahead of the midterms by the Jeff Sessions Justice Department – Two easy wins, now in doubt, because there's not enough time. Good job, Jeff. So this is an extraordinary statement because what the president is suggesting in this tweet is that a, a decision on prosecution uh, of, uh, uh, of allies of the president uh, should be made with an eye towards the political impact. He's very clearly 
tying this to the midterms. And these are, by the way, the first and second members of Congress to endorse candidate Donald Trump. So Jeff Sessions is by all uh, account has ignored this tweet. But let me ask you this. Is this not attempted obstruction of justice? And if the attorney general had taken this directive from the president of the United States, wouldn't it be, in fact, obstruction of justice by the president of the United States? I think it's uh, inappropriate uh, in the extreme. Uh, I have uh, criticized the president, including in a Washington Post op-ed that I did over a year ago about his approach with respect to the Justice Department. In my own view, it does not constitute obstruction of justice because the president has the raw power to do what he's doing. Uh, But uh, I do think it sounds in the nature of an abuse of power, and that becomes a political issue and ultimately an issue for the House of Representatives. So he should not be doing this kind of thing. Well, that's that's an interesting thing. You said that it's not obstruction of justice because the president has the power to do what he is doing. So even if those investigations were ended because of the president's uh, directive, it's not obstruction of justice in your view. Yes, yes. Uh, under uh, you know, people are going to have different views on this, but uh, I believe my view is supported by Supreme Court precedent, including a unanimous decision in the Arthur Anderson case that says that this kind of thing that we're talking about. That's not an abuse of power. I mean, excuse me, that's not obstruction of justice. It may be an abuse of power, but it's not an obstruction of justice unless there is something corrupt. And corrupt is not simply, oh, that's mean-spirited or for his own good. It's corruption in the sense of bribery and the like, and we don't have Well, I mean, that. this is—what you're saying sounds a little bit like uh, Nixon in the David Frost interview. If the president does it, it's not illegal. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're saying, isn't it? No, no, I'm talking about a constitutional and statutory provision. The obstruction of justice statute has been rather narrowly interpreted by the Supreme Court. So I'm making a legal point that Richard Nixon didn't have (laughs) uh, that arrow in his quiver, and I'm not uh, arguing the president's case. I'm just making the legal point that the Supreme Court of the United States says you've got to have more than what I think exists now, you've got to have something accompanying standing in the door, so to speak, of the justice process, such as bribery. Okay, one... one... Hey, I've I, 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 I got to go because, okay. because of my being late. All right, all right. Ken Starr, okay. uh, former independent counsel, former solicitor general, former federal judge, former president of Baylor University, and current author of Contempt, a memoir of the, inve- of the Clinton investigation. Thank you for being so generous with your time here on Powerhouse Politics. Oh, it's great. Thanks so much, John. You take care. Fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics, a truly fascinating discussion uh, with Ken Starr. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our production team here, Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, uh, my uh, partner in crime here, uh, Rick Klein. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon. 